Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Today on the Action Catalyst, host Dan Moore talks with Sukinder Singh Cassidy, a leading technology executive and entrepreneur with 25 years of experience founding and helping to scale companies including Google and Amazon. Most recently, she served as president of StubHub and as a member of eBay's executive leadership team. She has been named one of Elle magazine's Power Women and one of the top 100 people in Silicon Valley. Her new book, Choose Possibility, is out now. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and I'm so happy to have Sukinder Singh Cassidy with us today. Sukinder has a very extensive background of helping organizations and groups, and really fundamental to our principles here, has a lot of encouragement she can offer in terms of how to ignite people's direction setting, because unlike so many people that are highly successful, she wasn't always such. She's hit some brick walls along the way, and we're very excited that she's going to share some of the lessons learned from that. So Sukinder, welcome to the Action Catalyst. Thank you so much for having me. Kind of curious about some of the main pivots in your career, starting off as a graduate from Western University in Canada to where you are today as an influencer and a leader of so many people. What were some of the main significant pivots that maybe resulted in unexpected outcomes? Well, I think first and foremost, I probably not unexpected, but I had a pretty hard time getting a job. So I wouldn't call it a pivot, but I called it many explorations and over a year to sort of get my job out of undergraduate business school, which was a fairly kind of good schooling uh, in just how many things you need to pursue to have something work out. And then I think my first maybe unexpected pivot, I ended up ultimately getting a job and working in investment banking, but I quit my job in my mid-20s and moved to Silicon Valley simply because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how. I had been working in finance and uh, in both New York and London, and I kind of walked in one day and quit my job and moved clear across, uh, I guess, a couple continents and parked myself in Silicon Valley, mostly believing that the weather was great and that people here knew how to start businesses. And if I didn't know how to do that, I should. So it was one big pivot. Another one of my bigger pivots was leaving Amazon to start my own business. I got the opportunity to co-found a technology startup. Uh, maybe a third pivot was uh, I went on from my own startup to Google, which many people would call a pivot. I, you know, split from startup back to something bigger. But many, many years later, I pivoted out of Google back into entrepreneurship. So the big pivots in my career have often been between large and small companies. And I would say most recently, you know, I pivoted back out of being an entrepreneur, which I was after Google, to large company again and ran a platform that many of you know called StubHub. And so I think the biggest pivots in my career have been, you know, from non-tech to tech and then within tech from large to small and back again. I have to say I'm personally disappointed because the last ticket I bought from StubHub, my Red Sox lost to the Yankees. Oh, no. I'm curious along the way if you could describe maybe one or two of the the bigger brick walls that you encountered, things that impeded your progress that maybe were not anticipated and some strategies that you feel like are valuable to cope with one of those slams in the face when you're just least expected. Sure. Well, as we talked about, one of the first ones was just graduating college. I mean, I you know found school fairly easy. I was an overachiever. As you and I just talked about, I went to actually a top undergraduate program in Canada, one of the best sort of undergraduate business schools. And so I was fairly used to being successful. So the first brick wall was simply 
graduating without a job when all my peers had one and, and finding the job search unexpectedly hard. Now, I was fairly ambitious. I wanted to go work on Wall Street. I didn't want just any job. I wanted the job. But I spent, you know, as we talked about, probably a good year, multiple different choices, uh, multiple different explorations to try and land kind of my dream job. So I'd say that first brick wall was pretty tremendous and that I spent a lot of my time kind of upset alone. I sort of retrenched and sort of did hotel sales over the summer when I had no job. I started recruiting with the class under me because I'd already graduated and waited for fall recruiting cycle. I still failed to get a job. I looked at law school, medical school. I mean, I looked at every derivative under the sun. And I guess my big learning there was just, you know, the pursuit of possibility means ultimately building, you know, I'd say a pretty big pipeline of opportunity and taking risks to discover what's possible And that really, you know, that pursuit, while it was painful, definitely taught me a lot I know about risk-taking very early on. And just how many, you know, how much being a smart risk-taker is about not betting on one thing, but betting on many things at once. And I think that was a really seminal kind of learning for me. And if I were to fast forward, I kind of chatted about the fact that I left Google at kind of one of the pinnacles of my career. I was in my late 30s. I was one of the most senior executives at the company. I was running a large business for Google, Asia Pacific and Latin America, been very successful. And I decided I wanted to go run or start a startup. And I was very studied in my exit from Google. I exited well, you know, I studied the landscape of startups I might want to join. I ultimately picked one I had known for three years. And yet six months later, the founder and I both wanted to run the company and he decided he wanted it back. And I was out of a job. I was out of my first CEO job. And of course, I recovered. Um, we all do. And I went out to found another e-commerce company and then to run StubHub. But that learning for me was also really pivotal. You know, A, it's, you know, learning and how to cope with failure. But B, just understanding that, you know, whenever we take a risk, you know, we're often pursuing multiple outcomes. And I say to people, I decide to be a CEO. I decide to enter e-commerce. And I picked a certain company. And two of those three choices ended up being really good choices. (laughs) And so, you know, when we look back often, you know, what seems like a failure in the short term is, of course, a learning that kind of propels our score in ways we can't foresee. And I would say it's many, many choices later before you get the ultimate reward. So I didn't get the reward for that risk right away. But 10 years later, I ultimately did reap the rewards for becoming, you know, an expert in e-commerce and choosing to be a CEO when I got to run StopUp and obviously sell the company for $4 billion. And many people would say that's a great success. And I'm like, well, that success started with a pretty painful failure. Right. It's amazing how many years an overnight success can take. Yeah, isn't it? There you go. That is the lesson in all of it, of course. There's not one choice. It's not one move. It's just many moves to the reward. Right. You use the word possibilities. Your book is called Choose Possibility, widening the lens so that you can see many things, even if they're not exactly what you think you're targeting. Why did you focus on that title for your book and and what does it actually convey? Sure. Well, first of all, I think the book is really centered on trying to debunk the myths around risk-taking that keep most people from taking any action. You know, there are many myths in the book that I wanted to sort of disrupt. The myth that there's a single choice that's, that's between us and success. You know, the myth that risk and reward is somehow really linear. If you take a big risk now, you're going to get rewarded tomorrow. I mean, unfortunately, it's not nearly as linear as you think but there are benefits to risk-taking that compound over time. And so I chose the phrase choose possibility because as one of the opening quotes in the book goes, when nothing is sure, everything is possible. And so we tend to think about risk as being a downside 
harmful activity when most of the risks we pursue are in pursuit of possibility. So if you were to reframe kind of your choices as choosing possibilities in sequence, this one, then this one, then this one, well, that's sort of how you make your way to the reward. Um, so that's by the title. I like that. I know you've also used the phrase normalizing failure as opposed to celebrating failure. It's not something that we jump up and down because we're excited about, but normalizing it. What, what does that actually mean? Well, I mean, I think that part of the reason people don't take more risks or, you know, make more new choices is because we have a massive fear of failure. And the fear of failure, in some ways, outweighs their what I call FOMO, the fear of missing out on an opportunity. So we always are told to visualize the positive and, you know, and really what often keeps us from acting is not that we can't imagine the positive, it's that the failure fear kind of overtakes, you know, this kind of positive desire we have for ourselves. Failure is painful. I mean, you know, that polyvore experience, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But the truth is that if we want to make lots of little choices, which is what I advocate in the book, like you have to get comfortable with the idea of failing and really be, you know, I'd say fairly realistic that most of the choices we make are not nearly as dangerous as we perceive. And so in our daily choices, we might fear ego risk. That's a big one where we're just like, wow, what if we look foolish or stupid? You know, what if, you know, an idea we say loudly in a room doesn't get the response we want? And I'm always like, okay, what if it doesn't? Like, think through what are the real repercussions of you speaking up to have more impact and it not working out? And the real repercussions are relatively speaking meaningless. Like you walk out of that meeting, your day goes on, your life goes on, you haven't lost your job, you haven't lost, you know, haven't lost anything for it. So I often say to people, normalizing failure is about helping to recognize that most fears we have come from risks we can name. And we can often pre-mortem and think about what are the real repercussions of failure before we make a choice and realize that failure is not only normal, but in many ways, it's, you know, there are much smaller risks than we perceive in our head when we take the time to think them through. And thinking them through helps us get into action. So I'm a fan of what I call pre-morteming failure, you know, normalizing failure, meaning like you take more risks, you inevitably will have more failures, but, you know, you also learn to put them in perspective relatively quickly. So the small ones don't scare you nearly as much. Right. You know, any parent sees their child with absolutely no fear of failure when they're learning how to walk, when they're learning how to grab things, when they're learning how to ask incessantly. Later on, we become more concerned with outcomes, I think. And that's when that fear of failure kicks in in a bigger way. Yeah. And it stays with us throughout our lives. The fears we have just change with different risks. You know, about 70 years ago, Dale Carnegie wrote a book called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And he said the very first step is to imagine what is the worst thing that could happen. And the second step, could you survive it? I use that a lot. That's what I call pre-mortemic failure. I don't think you avoid thinking about the failure. I think you pre-mortem it. You say, let me just think what's the worst case. And if I can live through that, what's stopping me? That's terrific. Now, you also uh, start off in your book fairly early on and you say, let's ditch the hero's journey vision for our lives. Can you mm -hmm. expand on that? Because I think that's a, a great concept. Sure. Um, what comes to this phrase I used earlier called the myth of the single choice. I think that hero's journey that we celebrate in media, you know, in storytelling, in films, everywhere else kind of, you know, sort of tends to put the arc in somebody's journey on this one mighty choice they made that was particularly risky, that led to sort of abject failure or incredible success. And so we've extracted away all the other choices people make on their journey as if they don't matter. This is the hero's journey. It's been extracted away in our mind to like one data point. You know, what we remember about Elon Musk is that, you know, he tried to send rockets into space, right? But we forget that Elon Musk is an expert risk taker that has made hundreds and thousands of choices, many small, some medium, some large, you know, and really learned to kind of keep 
reading from the results and get more and more comfortable making choices. He's an expert choice maker, more than he's an expert predictor of a single big choice. They're all building upon each other. And so I, well, I say dish the hero's journey because that's not how it works in real life. In real life, you know, everybody you kind of admire for something that the media talks about is making hundreds or thousands of choices and you can't see them all, but they're all unfolding, you know, in different arcs. And in real life, we get far more than one shot at glory. I mean, honestly, the, as I said, the path between risk and reward is often many, many choices to the reward, not a single one. Mm-hmm. I think, again, the lessons of parenting can apply here because there's generally not a single moment in a parent-child's relationship that is determinative. It's the accumulation of all those moments and all of those decisions and all those influences over a long period of time, plus the free will and free choice of the child. That's a great analogy. I've never heard that one. The one that appeals to me, but very similar is tennis. I play tennis all the time. And the fastest you can win is 18 games. You know, that's if you're a female. And the fastest you can win if you're a man is 30 games, right? But every shot is like a game in itself. And if I keep thinking about the last shot, I can never take the next shot. But there is no like one winning point in tennis. It's just an accumulation of shots, right? And choices. Each choice you're trying to maximize and learn to make the next choice. But the minute you've made a choice, you kind of need to let go of it, optimize it, optimize that rally, and then move on to the next choice. So it's very, very similar. This idea that we don't have a single shot. You know, we're playing for a game or a season, in the case of parenthood, a lifetime. (laughs) Well. And speaking of choices, you have chosen to keep growing. You've chosen to keep contributing, to keep learning, instead of just taking the coasting path from great success. What is it that helps you avoid mediocrity and the tendency to become too complacent? Well, I think I'm somebody who, you kind of hit it, I'm wired to get my own energy from having impact. And so the minute you make that decision, the minute I feel like my impact is tapering off, like I'm just not getting results, like I'm wired to want results and outcomes. So the minute the outcome is the same, I sort of lose interest a little bit. And part of what keeps me learning is I'm wired to sort of want the next impact and I want the new impact. The new impact means new growth. It's almost, you know, if I wanted to do the same thing over and over again, I'd get bored pretty quickly. So, you know, it's not that I've tried to avoid mediocrity, but I think I've always been in pursuit of new impact. And once I've had an impact, sort of my attention turns pretty readily to like, okay, what's the next outcome I can produce? And it turns out the next outcome you produce, if it's new, de facto, you're learning something. Like, right, it's almost impossible to produce a new outcome without having new learning. So I think I've ended up in pursuit of learning because I've been in pursuit of new outcomes. And it turns out that that's a pretty good way to not get stuck in the same run. I'd say that's very true. You've been choosing possibility as a habit pattern for a long time. Do you have a morning routine do you have a, a standard way that you try to start your day that gets the juices flowing, the energy moving, et cetera? Uh, it's such a great question. I wish I could tell you I was this terribly balanced person who wakes up in the morning and exercises and also the same thing. I mean, what gets my juices flowing are two things and there are two things I wouldn't trade off for, for as much money as you paid me. Number one, coffee. Number two, my kids. Um, so my pattern is remarkably similar. But yeah, I really enjoy that. That is my ritual. Coffee, kids out the door then the day starts. But that is where I get my joy. I like, you know, waking up as a mother and seeing your kids first thing, there's not really a lot to replace that feeling. Um, And just the hustle and bustle of getting them out the door. Now, we'll see what I have to replace that ritual with when they all go off to college, but I'm not quite prepared to face that yet. That's great. What would you share with our listeners who are maybe so discouraged right now by their situation? What would you offer to somebody that's either for economic or personal or career reasons, just they don't know where to turn, what to do next? Yeah, it's a great question. First of all, I will say to people, 
the problem with these myths, like the myth of the single choice and so on, it, it makes you believe that the only way out of a situation is through a mighty choice. And often the way out of a situation is to just begin taking any action. And, you know, to your point, there are people who it will be multiple choices or moves, right, to move themselves from, let's say, a negative state to a positive state. But I think that encouragement for me is it doesn't need to be a mighty choice. Like, you can make the smallest incremental choice. I say to people, maybe you can't change your job today because you have economic hardship and you can't give up a salary, you know, even for a day, let alone a week, right? But the question is, okay, well, what is the smallest action? What I will say, what's the minimum viable choice you could make today towards possibility? And maybe the minimum viable choice today is to like spend 15 minutes on the internet, just looking at job postings and the minimum viable choice a week from now, you know, is to do that again. I mean, the good news about choosing possibility is nobody's telling you the time frame in which it needs to happen. It's mostly an encouragement of making any small action and realizing that the power is in that those actions add up. So I'd more be like, okay, just commit to, you know, what time can you set aside over the next month or year, whatever time frame you can afford, but just make sure it's not a one-off act, just like micro actions. You know, if you can commit to micro actions over whatever time frame you can deal with, you can start to pivot your way out of your circumstances to something better. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's about telling people to take my, one mighty risk to be foolish or to be in the opposite of smart risk takers. Smart risk taking, as I said, is more about the frequency of building some action into your routine, however small. I think that's really encouraging, Sukinder, because you talk about the iterative value of multiple choices and the knowledge that we gain from that, the confidence we gain from that, even when some of them don't turn out so well. Hoping for that one big swing if that doesn't happen, then too much is hanging on that one thing. I've always believed that even slow motion is better than no motion. Yeah, I'm saying. From a leadership standpoint, you also speak about looking for people that make choices, not at your level or even your direct report level, but maybe one or two or three or four if you're in a large organization. Tell us more about the value of that, how you might notice those people. How do you promote that and talk about that so that it becomes more of a norm within the group? Sure. Well, first of all, when we talk about having impact at work, what wisdom would suggest, well, the, the higher you go, the more important you are, but theoretically, the more influence you have over, over an organization. But all of the increments of work that matter, like how you treat your customers, you know, what product you're able to ship in a week or a month, they're all determined by much smaller groups of people who are two, three, four levels down the organization who hold responsibility for those things. And so the higher up we go, the more distant we get from actually a lot of the core activities that create value, right? And so I always say to people, like, find the people who are creating the value, not talking about creating value or managing or manage. Like, you want to, you know, you want to get as close as you can to the people who are creating the value to understand your product better, to unleash their power. And so I think people who can actually implement the strategy or think about a CEO are not the level beneath you. The three or four levels that they need to, right? Because their hands are on the keyboard. <laughs> so if you want to make something happen, they have to want to make it happen. So my kind of biggest advice as a leader is I at StubHub definitely tried to create extended leadership organizations that were not about hierarchy or title. It was about, you know, what responsibility area you were leading. So I sort of was like, I really don't care what your title is. And that's the reason you're in the room. You should be in the room. You should be on an extended leadership team. If you're managing some aspect of the core activity of the business, and quite frankly, I don't care then if you're an individual contributor, if you're a manager, if you're a leader, like what I care about is who's in the room that can actually affect the outcome. And that is sometimes independent of title. So yeah, independent of title, you can find the levels in the organization that are doing the real work and have the responsibility and probably the knowledge of what would work or what wouldn't. And I'm like, create leadership forums regular where you can sort of see that work, hear from those folks. So some people do skip level meetings, but 
for me, like the idea of a leadership team that would come to our quarterly goal setting and actually would often present. I'd be like, hey, I don't want to hear from like just three people who report to me. I'd rather hear from the people doing the work directly, presenting their own quarterly goals. So you want to create forums where you can shrink that distance. That also is a huge communication benefit, obviously, and a two-way dialogue benefit when you're trying to figure out what strategies might be better. I think it takes a lot of confidence in the leader to do that because sometimes we see ourselves on a scale of one to 10 as an 11. It's really tempting to hire people that are 10 so they don't challenge us. And then those 10s take the cue and they hire nines. The nines hire eights. And eventually who's facing the customer is the ones and twos. And we wonder why our ratings are going down. Right. That's true. But the other, the other thing I've seen also is, but as people go up, the management change, they think the value in their job is their span of control and how many people they manage and how aggressively down they manage. And I would say in the best organizations, people are all managing up. You hire people who, you know, want to share with you their goals and their vision. And then those people want to receive that because they know that that gives them leverage and they in turn are trying to do the same with the person on top of it. So I've seen organizations where have really good talent, but managers think their job is to manage down and tell people what to do, as opposed to create leverage all the way up. And why managers aren't threatened by the people who work for them, but see them as like leverage for the organization and for their own efforts, a lot of beautiful things happen. Well, it sure does. If only every organization could figure that part out. <laughs> well, this is just great, Sukinder. I want to thank you so much for the time you spent with me. Very personally encouraging. And I know our listeners as well. I love the notion of choosing the possibles, of realizing that it's not a single heroic swing of the bat or swing of the tennis racket. It's the accumulation of positions and moves and reactions. It's the steady movement, even if it's a stop start, we don't stop for too long. And don't be afraid of failures. In fact, we can normalize them as part of success. I think these are fantastic lessons. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.